Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, we're going to be joined by Al Santasiri. He's the director of publications for the New York Yankees. He's the co-author of two books that bring us the rich history of Yankee Stadium, which closed down last season. New Yankee Stadium opened up this week. We'll reflect on old Yankee Stadium with Al Santasiri. That's in segment three. In segment four, Henry Abbott. He's with ESPN.com's True Hoop. We'll discuss our postseason awards in the NBA. We'll make our playoff predictions. And we'll discuss why in the world former New York Knicks head coach Isaiah Thomas would take the head coaching job at Florida International University as he did this week. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Joined in studio by my producer, Bobby Corser. Bobby, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, an epic showdown that we've all waited to see between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Both started the day, I think it was seven strokes behind the leaders. CBS really followed them the entire day. It was an epic showdown. Neither one of the gentlemen wound up winning the tournament. But surprisingly enough, and I'm very surprised by this, the numbers for this year's Masters down compared to last year's Masters, most likely because this year's Masters took place on Easter. Absolutely. And you know what? Tiger and Phil saved the day for CBS because if they weren't even near or if they had both missed the cut, you could have kissed the tournament on TV goodbye because there was just no compelling storylines going into Sunday without Tiger and Phil. Or if they had come out and you know bogeyed their first few holes and not made the charges that they made, it was almost like they beat each other up so badly on the course they had nothing left for the last few holes. So it was interesting. Some very sad losses in the world of sports this week. Some very notable names passed away, and we will tell you about that in the final segment of our show. The 2011 Major League Baseball All-Star Game has a home. Where? We'll tell you. And the richest, highest-grossing boxer in the history of boxing retired this week. No, it's not Muhammad Ali. He retired a long time ago. Who is it? We'll tell you. That's coming up next in Headlines. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, the Masters. It's in the books, and Angel Cabrera is your winner, but he was far from the story. As a matter of fact, on Sunday during the final round, Angel Cabrera could barely be seen. You had to put out a missing persons report for Angel Cabrera because most of the time on CBS was devoted to Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, who played together. Rightly so, the two titans of the sport. We had waited for years for Tiger and Phil to play in the final round of a major, and here they were. They started the day seven shots back. They both made a charge. Wasn't enough at the end of the day. A three-person playoff with Kenny Perry, Chad Campbell, and Angel Cabrera. Angel Cabrera wins his second tournament. His first win, the 2007 U.S. Open. So this guy doesn't win often in the United States, but when he does, he wins majors. He's got two of them. Now the ratings for the Masters down 8% on CBS for Saturday, Sunday, as opposed to last year. One of the big reasons was because this year, Sunday, was Easter Sunday. Last year, the Masters was not played on Easter Sunday for the Sunday coverage. Now, ESPN was up 8% for their Thursday and Friday coverage. Bobby Corser, I thought that ESPN and CBS did a very nice job with their coverage. And look, there were some people that complained that the leaders weren't seen more often on Sunday. When you have the two titans of your sport, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, two of the highest-earning athletes on the planet going head-to-head, you show them. Absolutely, and you know what? Phil came out of the gate so incredibly hot. How could you not not want to see him? I mean, the guy was birdieing holes left and right. Tiger finally kick-started his round halfway through, but it's like, it was still those were the two guys you wanted to watch because not only were they making a charge, but the leaders were starting to falter. And look, here comes the field. This was Ollie Frazier, McEnroe, Borg. This was what we wanted. So, again, if you're CBS, you've got to show it. And it was almost like there were two tournaments going on. I've heard a lot of people talk about that, and I agree. It was like there was Tiger and Phil, and then there was the rest of the field and the three-man playoff. So the three-man playoff, when they were on the course, uh, ratings were at about a 10. When Tiger and Phil were getting off the course, ratings were at about a 94 To compare that to ESPN, ESPN's ratings were about a 2.6, and those were up from last year. So it does show you that CBS still gets more people than a cable network like ESPN, but also more people are around the TVs on the weekend than they are during the week. All right, our next headline. Oscar De La Hoya announced his retirement from boxing on Tuesday, four months after his final bout ended in a one-sided loss to Manny Pacquiao, the 36-year-old De La Hoya's remarkable career included a 1992 Olympic gold medal and professional titles in six weight divisions. He's also the highest grossing star in the history of the sport. That's amazing. Again, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler. Oscar De La Hoya is the highest earning boxer of all time. Now, the native of East Los Angeles will stay involved in the sport as a promoter for his Golden Boy Promotions company. Our next headline, Major League Baseball has awarded the 2011 All-Star Game to Chase Field and the Arizona Diamondbacks. They'll host the game on July 12th, 2011. It's been pretty good news for the city of Phoenix. They also hosted the NBA All-Star Game this year. Now they learn that 
2011, they'll be hosting the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And our final headline of the week, the NFL released the full 2009 regular season schedule Tuesday. Amongst the highlights, the Cowboys will open their new stadium against the New York Giants in Week 2, that's September 20th. The Colts will play host to the New England Patriots in Week 10, that's November 15th. And the schedule for the regular season gets underway when Tennessee plays at the defending Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers on Thursday, September 10th to kick off the NFL regular season. All right, coming up next, Al Santasiri. He's the director of publications for the New York Yankees. And if you've been a big fan of Yankee Stadium, you're going to want to find out about these two books, which I received recently. I've never been to Yankee Stadium, but after reading these books, I feel like I have. The pictures are amazing, and if you really want to learn about the tradition of Yankee Stadium, I invite you to stick around for this next conversation with Al Santasiri. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000. The year before you bought the Mavericks, they were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Al Santasiri. He is the author of two really terrific books about Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium, the official retrospective, and the final season, the official retrospective. Al is the director of publications for the New York Yankees. Al, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. You're welcome, and thanks for having me on. One of my biggest regrets is that I was never able to get to Yankee Stadium before the final game there last season. But after reading these books, I feel like I've been there. You did a phenomenal job. And the thing that really stood out to me was the pictures. The photographs are just unbelievable. Maybe you can talk to me and our audience a little bit about how these two books came about. Well, I appreciate the the compliments. And, and that's certainly the impression we want to leave with people is that, uh, you know, now that Yankee Stadium is, is not here anymore, you know, we want people to kind of live through uh, Yankee Stadium, through these books, so to speak. And, you know, I was in a fortunate position uh, in 2006 as the Yankees director of publications in that, you know, we announced that we would be, you know, moving across the street and moving into a new stadium and Yankee Stadium would be no more. And, uh, you know, at that point and at, at that juncture, you know, a lot of, you know, publishers were certainly very interested in uh, partnering with the New York Yankees and putting a book together and a real, you know, one-of-a-kind book, you know, that would chronicle the whole history of Yankee Stadium, both through words and photographs. And 
you know, certainly the phone was ringing off the hook, and um, we were able to, you know, in the first book to uh, to partner with Mark Vansel, whose reputation as a, as an author is is uh, you know really speaks for itself, and and then ultimately with Simon and Schuster as our publisher, uh, and, and able to put in Yankee Stadium the official retrospective of a book together in which, you know, we really had. Uh, really the opportunity to, to chronicle Yankee Stadium from the inside out. We had unequaled access to everywhere in the ballpark because we were doing it ourselves uh, as the Yankees, of course. And, and um, you know, I was able to interview o- over 80 people for that book. And that was really the unique angle, was just getting the, the perspectives of so, such a vast array of of people and, and their thoughts on Yankee Stadium, and not just Yankees players and, and former Yankees players, but... You know the likes of Bill Clinton and George Bush and uh, Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and, and so many people that were here, uh, either as uh, so to speak performers or just as spectators. The Yankees have such a rich history. I would imagine that your archives are just uh, you know a wealth of knowledge. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, I've watched the Yes Network and I've seen all the video footage, but when it comes to pictures and other documents, artifacts, how rich is that uh, archive for the Yankees? You mean our photo archive? Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty vast. I mean, we have uh, tremendous photo archives from you know both uh, you know the, the recent history and and the, the great teams in the '90s and in the '70s all the way back to you know photos of Yankee Stadium that you see in the book from you know before Yankee Stadium. I say pictures of Yankee Stadium, but pictures of the area where Yankee Stadium ultimately inhabit it before it was even there. Um, so we, you know, we, we really, again, we're fortunate to, to have such a, a great archive, uh, to, to go to. And we also went elsewhere. I mean, it was, you know, this book was, uh, you know, not just, uh, doesn't just contain photos from, from our archives, but also from the baseball hall of fame, from sports illustrated, from other photo bureaus. I mean, we, we went far and wide to find the best photos really ever taken of Yankee Stadium or at Yankee Stadium. Well, and the thing that I really liked about the Yankee Stadium retrospective was there weren't just Yankee games played there. I mean, we all know that that's the house that Ruth built, but, you know, Billy Joel and U2 played there. Muhammad Ali and Rocky Marciano fought there. Last year, the Pope said Mass at Yankee Stadium. So, so many wonderful events took place at Yankee Stadium besides just Yankees baseball games, and I thought this book did a tremendous job of capturing those events in photos. Thank you, and I think that's certainly, uh, you know, no... No one would ever dispute the, the Yankees' rich history at Yankee Stadium. But I think the thing that separates Yankee Stadium ultimately from every other sports venue in the world you know, is the number of, of non-baseball events. I mean, so many historical event, events that took place at Yankee Stadium, such as, like you said, the fact that you know, three popes celebrated Mass at Yankee Stadium. The first two were uh, you know, Pope Paul and Pope John Paul II, Pope Paul VI and Pope John Paul II. For both of them, it was their first papal masses in North America, you know, both the Yankee Stadium. You know, the famous Joe Lewis Max Schmeling fight in 1938 here at, at Yankee Stadium, you know, had so many political ramifications. And, you know, Ali fought, you know, Ken Norton here in 76, and uh, so many great football games, college football games. The greatest, you know, still recognized as the greatest football game ever was the Giants against the Colts in 1958. So it's really, really, truly 
cover you know, the gamut of what went on at Yankee Stadium. You, you, you had to go far beyond baseball, and I, I certainly feel like we did that. Al, you work for the Yankees, and you just did a book on Yankee Stadium. Tell us something about Yankee Stadium that uh, may be a, a hidden fact, something that uh, may not be general knowledge. That's a good question. Boy. Anything from the architecture to maybe a, a special moment that took place there that wasn't uh, you know, widely broadcast? Maybe yeah. some relics that are there that are moving over to the new Yankee Stadium? Well, I, I think some of the interesting things is that Certainly with the new stadium is the fact, you know, the facade uh, at the old Yankee Stadium rimmed the interior, the inside of the ballpark from the foul pole, you know, basically going back towards the infield from foul pole to foul pole, but along the infield. And then when it was renovated in the early 70s, they switched it so the facade was in the outfield. At the new stadium, it's back to the way that it, it, it originally was, uh, where you know the stadium, rather, is back in, in rimming the infield. Uh, so, so the new stadium has a lot of things that look like the old Yankee Stadium did before it was renovated in, in the early '70s. I would say that's you know one of the interesting things, and we certainly talked about that in the book. Uh, you know, another thing we talked about is that you know the, the home dugout. Uh, I'm sorry, the home home dugout and, and home clubhouse in the early days of Yankee Stadium was the third base dugout and the clubhouse located near a third base. That switched it's sometime in the, in the, and I don't know the exact date off the top of my head, but sometime in the early 40s, that was switched to where the Yankees dugout, a home dugout and home clubhouse was on the first base side. So a lot of people go into the Yankees clubhouse. Currently, what, what was the Yankees clubhouse on the first base side and think, oh, well, this is where, you know, this is the same clubhouse that Babe Ruth was in and Lou Gehrig, but that's actually not true. They switched, they made that switch uh, in the 40s. So I would say those are those are two interesting kind of hidden secrets about the field ballpark. I'm joined by Al Santasiri. He's the co-author of two terrific books about Yankee Stadium. The first is Yankee Stadium, the official retrospective. The other is the final season, the official retrospective. Al is the director of publications for the New York Yankees. Al, just a few minutes left. Uh, one of my favorite pictures in the book was the perfect picture, and it was a picture of David Cohn, Don Larson, and David Wells, the three Yankee pictures who have all thrown perfect games. Uh, that must have been quite a feat to get the three of those gentlemen together. Yeah, that was a picture we're very, very proud of in the fact that, you know, we were able to get them and, and you know, along with their their battery mates, Yogi Berra and Jorge Posada and Joe Girardi, which is in the, you know, during the final game, and you know, it kind of scrambled around a lot. I, I did uh, during that final game to get them out onto the field and uh, and get them all together for that picture. We knew if we could get them together that that would be something no one else would have, and it would be a very, very special moment. There's a lot of photos like that, especially in the the final season uh, retrospective book, because we we really controlled that ourselves. Very very happy with that. Some great pictures of Reggie Jackson, too. I like the one where he's got his leather jacket on and he's just standing there with the bat uh, in the outfield. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I, that was a special day. My two memories of Yankee Stadium, and, and I'm 40 years old, but my two memories, the first memory is when I was younger is, of course, Reggie Jackson's three home run game in the World Series right. against the Dodgers. The other was in 2001 when George W. Bush threw out the first pitch and the World Series was played at Yankee Stadium shortly after 9-11. I think that was just amazing in the seventh inning stretch and the song and 
just really an amazing time. So I thought, again, these books did a fantastic job capturing everything from the early history of Yankee Stadium and the Yankees to current day. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. They, we, we felt the same way. And, you know, there were so many great baseball moments and non-baseball moments, even like the, the, the first pitch that President Bush threw that we, we really needed to capture. You know, that was the angle that we went after for that, to cover that event, I guess you could call it, uh, where I spoke to his father, you know, President Bush 41, you know, about his son throwing out that first pitch. And, and uh, you know, we were able to really, you know, really cover everything that happened. Uh, the recent memories were a little bit easier to get, uh, you know, quotes about and the whole deal. But we, you know, we certainly uh, covered everything in the, in the history of the ballpark. Last question for you, Al. Uh, you know, again, Yankee Stadium, probably the most storied venue in North American sports history. And right. now the doors are closed. You're turning, a, you know, a new chapter, turning a page. How are people in New York and how are fans receiving this change and the closure of an iconic ballpark and, and then moving into a new one? They're very excited. I mean, you know, fans are, are excited to be, as am I, to be part of such a historical time, a time in which... Uh, you know, they got to see the end of, a, of an amazing historical era, and, and people are excited about the new ballpark. There's a lot to be excited about in this ballpark for a couple reasons. One, because it is a throwback to our history, and secondly, because there's, it's such a modern stadium. There's so many amenities. There's so much to be excited about uh, that, that's really unparalleled anywhere in sports, and from the restaurants to the you know, to the, to the luxurious seats, to, to every, every part of it. So fans are excited. It's a very, very exciting time. We have a great team as well, and uh, it's a great day, a great time to be, you know, a New York Yankee and to be associated with the team and to be a fan of the team. Al, tell our listeners quickly how they can get their hands on Yankee Stadium, the official retrospective, or the final season, the official retrospective. Okay, I'd be happy to. You can get uh, copies of either book uh, by calling one 800 Go Yanks, G-O-Y-A-N-K-S. Also, both books are available online at www.yankees.com. And, of course, they're sold at Yankee Stadium as well. That's great. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed those books, and I've enjoyed our conversation. And uh, best of luck with the new ballpark. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, Al. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Henry Abbott. He-
He is the founder of ESPN's TrueHoop.com. If you are an NBA fan, it is the absolute best NBA site on the internet. Henry, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So, Henry, let's start off by talking. I want to talk about the NBA playoffs, but let's look back on the season that was completed this week, and I'd like to go through some of your uh, awards. I mean, we've got MVP, Coach of the Year, things of that nature, so let's talk about those. First, who's your MVP? Uh, LeBron James is my MVP, and uh, I, I, hear, I, I hear the arguments. Um, you know, Dwayne Wade has the best highlight reel of the year. Kobe Bryant has the best skill set. Uh, Chris Paul, I don't know what he's supposed to do to be better. Um, and Dwight Howard is, you know, has a roster that everybody thinks should be a 500 team, and they're right there. They're among the very best defending teams in the league, and they're, you know, they're among the heavy candidates to make it to the NBA Finals. But there's just not a player in the league who is as efficient on offense or defense. Uh, I guess there are a couple that are better on defense, but, you know, combined as LeBron James, he's, He's so enormous and strong and quick and selfless, and you put that all together, and it turns out that that's more valuable to a team than the many things that Dwayne Wade and and Kobe Bryant have to offer. Yeah, I mean, look, you cannot go wrong by saying LeBron James is your MVP. I'm sure he's going to win the award. If I had a vote, I would vote Dwayne Wade just because I think he's got less to work with on his roster than LeBron does now, which is ironic because for years we've talked about how LeBron isn't really surrounded with that much talent, but now you've got Mo Williams and some other guys around him that are pretty darn good. But I'm sure LeBron, at the end of the day, I'd be willing to bet money that uh, he's probably going to be the guy getting the MVP award. Okay, Coach of the Year. This one is a really tough call. Who do, who do you like for yeah, Coach I of the Year? Yeah, I agonized over it. Um... And then I picked Rick Adelman of the Houston Rockets because when I watched, you know, first of all, let's, let's remember when he was hired, uh, the story was that he had this creative offense that was ball, sharing the ball and, and uh, getting everybody involved and sort of beautiful to watch. And that's, that's part of what they do there. And they've had a lot of players be very productive. And, like, I love, like, Carl Landry. Or this, and Yao Ming has been on. Actually, Yao Ming was sort of in my, I should have mentioned him in my MVP conference. I think he's been really good this year. But the Rockets are a shockingly good defensive team now. Like they're, they're almost right up there, like Cleveland, Boston, Orlando. Uh, the Lakers on a good night. Um, and Houston's right there. Like those are really good NBA defenses. And, um, and this is Rick Adelman. This is the guy who was not supposed to be a, a real tough defensive coach. And, you know, and they have players working together, and uh, like Chuck Hayes is an unbelievable defender. Um, I, I think they're a very scary team in the West, and, and I think Rick Adelman deserves a ton of credit. Of course, they've had injuries galore this year, but they're still right there in the hunt, and I'm, I'm scared of them in the playoffs. Yeah, again, uh, you will get no argument from me. Uh, I think Nate McMillan has done an amazing job with the youngest roster in the NBA in Portland. And then my disclaimer, I I do work with Eric Spolster, the head coach of the Miami Heat. They won 15 games last year. They're the number 5 seed in the playoffs. That's quite a turnaround there. A lot of people will say, well, that's all because of Dwayne Wade. But he's got a pretty young roster to work with, so I'd throw Spolster into the conversation. And then a lot of of people think that uh, Stan Van Gundy may be the coach of the year, too. So that's the hardest category. Mike Brown's going to get a lot of votes, too. That's true. The Cavaliers are so good. And getting, I guess the thing I'd say about both Dwayne Wade and Eric Spolstra like, you can't really find a flaw in what either one of them has done, but I think it's sort of just generally con- considered that getting from, like, 
you know, 30 to 40 wins is easier than getting from 40 to 50, and getting from 50 to 60 is tougher still. If you get to the point where you're just the low-hanging fruit is all gone, and you know, I think these awards tend to be about the guys. And I, I know so there's a sort of a stupid bias of like, oh, if they didn't win X games, you can't consider them. But I do think it tends to be somewhat right that it's like, look, these are these awards are for the best of the best, and the best of the best have figured out like how to do these most difficult final things to make themselves the very, you know, to make their team the very best. All right, executive of the year. I mean, we talk on this show about the people pulling the strings behind the scenes. This is an interesting category. Who gets your executive of the year vote? Really tough one. Um, so many good choices. And I, uh, I'm, a, you know, I'm a national writer who is a Portland Trailblazers fan, so I get really turn myself a nuts trying not to be a homer. But I don't think Kevin Pritchard has really made a bad move. Um, and he's made all kinds of moves that people thought were bad at the time. Um, yet later, you know, like, like for instance, Last year, the Trailblazers were pretty bad when James Jones didn't play. And then they let him go this summer, which seems disingenuous. And then I heard a lot of theories. One of the theories was that uh, the second unit he played on was extremely disorganized on defense. But when he was in there, he would yell, tell everybody where to go, and, and that made them much better. And then they just, and he wasn't an expensive guy, but they cut him loose. And you think to yourself, whoa, like, that's risky. Or when Travis Outlaw was a free, you know, guy's contract extension, it was, I remember debating with, you know, and people who were smart about basketball, like whether or not you give Travis Outlaw that kind of money in those kind of years. And um, and what about this point guard mess they had? But I, in retrospect, he's been proven right on just about everything. And, you know, the Blazers are right there with the Rockets as, you know, vying for uh, second most dangerous playoff team in the West. And, and I think Kevin Pritchard gets, is front of the line people who deserve credit for that. No, I would agree. I mean, I would give Pritchard Executive of the Year Award based on just two moves. Number one, you know, he and his staff successfully got Rudy Fernandez from Spain to Portland. That was not an easy task. And then the other thing is finding this Nicholas Batum kid and making the deal. I mean, they essentially traded uh, Daryl Arthur for him on, on draft night maybe one other player, but this Batum is a very valuable piece. He started for them all year. He's very young, and, you know, people want to talk about Mark Warkentine and getting Chauncey Billups to stabilize that roster. Yes, that was a terrific move, but just like you said, uh, I think you have a hard time arguing with uh, what Pritchard's done for this roster. And also, the executive's work, you know, pays off over a decade or so, and and he wasn't calling all the shots when they got Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge, but you know, that was such an unbelievable, it was one of the great draft moves of all time when they took Randy Foy and then forced the trade for Roy, breaking up a prearranged trade between the Rockets and the Timberwolves. And, you know, that was like, just like, you know, for Michael Jordan, it's, you know, showtime when there's a minute left and you're down one. Like, for Kevin Pritchard, draft day is just, a, I mean, he just owns that day. And, you know, that, that's why the Blazers are good right now. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but that's, that's, that's the main one. All right, Rookie of the Year. Uh, a lot of people think it's Derrick Rose, hands down. Who do you say? I uh, did say Derrick Rose, but I, I have to admit my heart wasn't in it. I, um, you know, the Bulls are now, like after this late surge, they're a team to be feared in the East, and they're playing pretty darn well. Uh, I really wanted to say Brooke Lopez because I've seen him play quite a bit, and he's a very good NBA big man right now, and you know, he plays for a pretty bad team, but he is, I mean, he's, he's making a big difference. 
I'm also uh, super high on O.J. Mayo, who every time I see Memphis play, I think of him as a veteran. You know, I think, like, wow, you don't leave him open, you know, and he's playing hard on D all the time. Um, and Eric Gordon's been excellent, same same kind of comment like O.J. Mayo. Yeah, he's probably the Clippers' best defender. But, uh, but no, Derek Rose, you got to admit, like, he's, he's, you know, right in the eye of the storm of a, of a, of a solid – NBA team, and that's when a rookie does that. I think they deserve Rookie of the Year. I know they don't have an award for this category, but Henry, who do you think the best owner is in the NBA? Oh, um, and not just the guy willing to write the biggest check, but who's who's the best owner in the NBA? I think. Um, I tell you what. I mean, if I if someone said to me you could go work for any owner in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, well, most of them are so so hidden away you don't even know what they're like. You know, but but of the ones that I've had some exposure to, I sure think Wick Grousebeck in Boston seems like a tremendously forward-thinking, competent leader type who isn't too meddlesome, and uh, that's a pretty good combo. No, that's definitely you can't go wrong there. And uh, look what Boston has done. My guest is Henry Abbott. He is the founder of ESPN's True Hoop. Go to TrueHoop.com to. Find him. All right. They should have that award, by the way. They should have owner of the year. I think they should, too. I mean, if you're going to give executive of the year, why not give owner of the year? Maybe they don't want the scrutiny, but it's interesting. Yeah, that'd be a good good call. So NBA playoffs, they start this weekend. Uh, lots of interesting scenarios, some hot teams coming in. Who do you like in the playoffs? I mean, the easy choice is to say it's going to be Cleveland and LeBron against L.A. and Kobe, the number one seeds, but rarely do we see two number ones lock up in the finals. Yeah, so it's a really interesting thing. Um, uh, I think, uh, I'm in my heart of hearts, I think Cleveland's going to win the East. Like, I, if, if Kevin Garnett were fully healthy right now, it would be very hard for me to pick against the Celtics, who just, look, you know, when they're firing all cylinders, they play so well. And then, it, you know, there's that great thing, like, where, you know, Orlando and Boston combined to make the field, as it were, like the other seven, the non-Cleveland teams in the East, very, very strong. So the more very strong teams you have in the field, the harder it is to be the front runner. And so uh, whoever makes it through will be uh, will have overcome a ton. And so, by I, my heart, I think the Cavaliers have proven they're the best team in basketball this year, and LeBron James is the best player, and they play great defense, and now their offense is. It's pretty good, too. So um, that's my hunch is it's going to be Cleveland against, you know, I don't know. I see the West as, as much further open than I think a lot of people do. But, you know, John Hollinger on ESPN.com has his playoff predictor doohickey, which uh, sort of intelligently calculates how likely each team is to make it how far. And, you know, he has the Lakers as by far the favorites, but they're still less than 50% likely to make the finals, which means, you know, the field there is more likely to make it than the, than the favorite. And so you have to dig in, like, who's, if it's not going to be the Lakers, who might it be? Um, it is most likely to be the Lakers, but, you know, but I think, I think the Rockets are there. I think the Blazers are there. I think the Nuggets are there. And if Tim Duncan's healthy, I think the Spurs are there. I think those are the teams that could be in the Western Conference Finals. And... After that, it's really matchups, right? It's like how how does it shake out? Who's who's in? Who played two in the second round? And um, I don't know. I, the one thing that I really think, like uh, like I just I just said, the last person I was talking to on the phone was like, all I want for Christmas is for the Blazers to play the Lakers. Yes, like, you and me the, both, Henry. 
That's the matchup that yep. America is going to want to see, I think. And it's going to be great because the Blazers, you know, the second youngest team in the NBA, youngest team in the playoffs, they believe they can beat the Lakers. They've played them very well this year, and um, it, it would be great to see. Well, haven't they beaten them nine straight at the Rose Garden? Or eight it was 2005, straight? last time they lost to the Lakers in Portland. So I just think, you know, I look at the Blazers, A, they're coming into the playoffs hot. B, they're not afraid of the Lakers. The Lakers do not intimidate them. And then they've shown that they can play with the Lakers, especially in Portland. The Blazers' problem is they've got to become a better road team, and it's hard to do that during the playoffs. But who knows? Uh, you know, if they win a series, they could have a lot of confidence going into a round two matchup against the Lakers. And you and me both, I would love to see the Lakers and uh, the Blazers. And we're based here in Portland, so they're having a rally here. Uh, you know, they haven't been in the playoffs in six years, so people here are, you know, out dancing in the streets that the Blazers are in the playoffs again. Well, there's a thing about the way the Blazers play, um, which is, you know, they they have four shooters on the floor at almost all times. And so, and then they have Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge who both demand double teams. So, you know, what that means is many, many times against just about every defense, the, there's a blazer shooter who, in a spot where he's a good shooter taking an open shot. So on the nights when those shots go in, the Blazers win no matter where they are. Um, the only problem is, like, sometimes the defense is so extraordinary that those open shots are really hard to find. And that's why I think Blazer fans are scared of the Rockets, is because against that one team, like, you know, Blazers have lost a lot of games, and when they have, you'll see, oh, well, you know, Steve Blake had, you know, he was – two for six, or, you know, all their shooters combined, Rudy Fernandez and Travis Outlaw, when those guys are cold, okay, you're going to lose some games. Brandon Roy gets open sometimes. You know, like, but uh, but the, the Rockets are one of the teams where I don't see a lot of open shots. You know, that's the, the one time where they, it just doesn't seem to work right. But against most teams, you know, I think, it, you know, this road home thing, yeah, it's all a concern, but, but the fact is, like, they're going to get, they're going to get good shots. And uh, if they have a night where there a lot of them are going in, they're going to win whoever they're playing against. Yeah, the Rockets knocked down more mid-range jump shots, uh, which are there for a lot of NBA teams, but teams can't make them. But the Rockets uh, just hit those with regularity. All right, last question. Former Knicks coach and president Isaiah Thomas this week named the head coach at Florida International University. Henry, I'm scratching my head because... Isaiah is one of the 50 greatest players of all time. He coached in Toronto. He coached in New York. And he coached in Indiana. And I'm just scratching my head going, gosh, why does this guy need this job? Florida International. It's not like he's going back to coach the Indiana Hoosiers or uh, a powerful team in the NCAA. I don't understand why he takes this job. I, I think it makes – here's why it makes sense to me. He's a guy with a name and a brand – that's potentially very valuable in all kinds. He, he could probably have like a Bill Clinton-style career going around talking to groups for a bunch of money and all that kind of stuff. But right now, all that is worth nothing. You know, like he, he's the guy who ruined the Continental Basketball Association, and then he ruined the New York Knicks, and then he had to be sort of have this ugly divorce. It was broker. You know, it was just like a, such a mess. And, and he's been in basketball purgatory, and right now he's the butt of a joke. Like his, you know, his name doesn't mean much right now. But... He's got basketball skill. He's, a, you know, he's proven that he's a good judge of talent. And um, they say, like uh, Lute Olson's book, he, he goes on this whole big thing about how you know, if you want to make a name for yourself as a coach, you have to go where there are no expectations. Like before Lute Olson went to Arizona, they were a bad program, and 
I think he was at Iowa before that, and they were a bad program. Like, so, you know, this is – Isaiah Thomas has zero expectations, and he's got some skill, and now – I mean, look, it could be it could be quick. Like if he if Florida International becomes a good team in two, three, four years, Isaiah Thomas is yeah, is fully empowered, you know, post NBA celebrity, and he can do. He's back in the mix for everything now. You know, then he's like a guy who's got basketball chops and and coaching chops, and and he's in the mix for whatever job he might want. Hmm. It's interesting. I don't know that I would have taken that route if I were him, but the way you just explained it, uh, I think it makes a lot more sense. Henry Abbott, the founder of ESPN.com's True Hoop. Go to TrueHoop.com. Henry, thanks for joining us this week. Hey, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. Guests appearing during our SportsCent segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to Morton's.com. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. You know, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and a very familiar voice to me is Al McCoy, the voice of the Phoenix Suns. Many a night, I fell asleep listening to Suns games, listening to Al McCoy. And many times in our youth, as we're growing up, or even when we get older, the person that is the voice of our favorite team becomes the brand of that team. Players come and go, coaches come and go, managers come and go, but the voice of your favorite team remains oftentimes for decades. Well, this week, the Philadelphia Phillies lost their voice. The voice of NFL Films as well lost their voice. Harry Callis, who was the voice of both the Philadelphia Phillies and NFL Films, collapsed in the broadcast booth on Monday before the Phillies' 9-8 victory over the Washington Nationals. He was 73. I had a chance to meet him several years ago, very quick meeting, but it was a class act, and he has an unmistakable voice. And from all accounts, Mr. Callis was just a, a wonderful man, and he was a titan in the broadcast industry, and it's a great loss for all of us. So condolences to the Callis family this week after Harry Callis passed away. Another big loss for the sports world, one of the all-time personalities in baseball, and really in all of sports in the last probably 50 years. Mark the Bird Fidrich, he was the 1976 AL Rookie of the Year with the Detroit Tigers. And if you remember, he's a guy that got a lot of people to tune into baseball because he used to talk to the baseball. People thought, what a character this guy is. And is he crazy? But the guy could pitch. 
and he was a two-time All-Star and, again, Rookie of the Year. And this week, he dies at the age of 54. Looks like it was an accident. So, uh, Bobby, I know you're a Detroit Tigers fan. Lots of people in Detroit, very sad. Lots of people in Philadelphia. I mean, again, if you go into broadcasting, you think of Vin Scully, Chick Hearn, Johnny Most, uh, some epic, iconic names, and you have to put Harry Callis in that class. You know, along with Harry Carey, same type of thing, because I know when, you know, Mr. Callis passed away, I know what Philadelphia is feeling. You know, City of Chicago went through the same thing when Harry passed away. And as you said, I am a Detroit Tigers fan, and I know that, you know, reading articles out of Detroit today, they are really, you know, sad that the death of Mr. Fidrich had come for a gentleman who was so young. Well, the good news for Harry Callis is that he got to see the Phillies win a ring last year. He got to go in the parade, and uh, at least he got that big ring before he uh, he moved on. And, uh, again, big loss for the sports world. I know him so much. from I used to watch Inside the NFL on HBO. I guess it's on Showtime now. And the voice of NFL films, it's an unmistakable voice. So, again, Harry Callis will be missed. All right, lots of thank yous. Henry Abbott from ESPN.com's True Hoop. Al Santasiri, the director of publications from the New York Yankees. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. You can also become our Facebook friend. Go on to the Sports Business Radio blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. Click on the SBR Facebook link. I'm Brian Berger. Have a fantastic week. We'll talk to you next weekend. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. Greg Oden of the Portland Trailblazers supports the Ronald McDonald Houses. I'm a big fan of the houses. Happy to help them make a difference. He helps because he believes every hospitalized child should be near their family in tough times. And everyone can support this home away from home. When you purchase a McCafe Espresso drink or premium roast coffee, McDonald's donates a portion of proceeds to Ronald McDonald House charities in Oregon and Southwest Washington. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. A little change can make a big difference. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.